Would you open with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 2? Exodus chapter 2. Today we're going to look at verses 1 through 10. The birth of Moses and that story. Uh, You'll remember last week, we talked about Exodus 1, that Exodus 1 sets the context for the rest of the book. You have Pharaoh, who's the typological seed of the serpent, and that Pharaoh is in conflict with Israel. He seeks to oppress them with the curse of the fall, but he's thwarted by the midwives, by these righteous women. But in Exodus 2, we, we suddenly zoom in. Right, we get the big picture in Exodus 1. We suddenly zoom in on Moses. And Pharaoh, as the typological seed of the, of the serpent, comes into conflict with Moses, who is the typological seed of the woman, raised up to oppose Moses. So let's pray, and then we'll read this together. Father, this morning, would you fill us with your Holy Spirit? Father, would you let your word impress itself deeply on our hearts? Father, we know that your word is living and active, so we ask that by its power you would cut us to the heart. You would show us new life, show us your hope. Father, illuminate your words by the Holy Spirit so that we can see your truth, your hope that you have for us. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Exodus 2, starting in verse 1. Hear God's word. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer... She took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young woman walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and she sent her servant woman and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me. And I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because she said, I drew him out of the water. Friends, the grass withers and the flowers fade. The word of the Lord stands forever. Amen. I remember hearing one time a story from a missionary to Eastern Europe. There's, there's a lot of overlap between the two cultures, between our culture and the culture of Eastern Europe. He was, he was in Bulgaria. But there are also some major differences. In America, for example, it's rude to stare at people. We teach our kids that. That's something that everybody, everybody knows in our culture. 
But in, in many Eastern European countries, it's actually rude. It's, it's not rude to stare at people. It's completely normal to stare at people. Now, this missionary, he hadn't thought much about that. Um, his, his kids spent most of their time in Eastern Europe. And so he never taught his kids not to stare at people because in the culture that they were living in, that was completely normal. But one day they were on furlough, and they were in America, and they were sitting in a restaurant. And somebody else in the restaurant angrily came up to their table and said, what's the deal? Why are your kids staring at me? What's wrong with them? You see, like, these, these kids looked American. They spoke perfect English. They watched American TV. They read American books. But they weren't American like you and I are American. They were raised in a different culture. And this, this is a common experience for, for missionary children. If you ask them where their home is, they might tell you that it's their parents' hometown, but most of them have, have spent little time at their parents' hometown. They may consider themselves American, but it, it may be the case that they actually belong just as much to the culture that they were raised in, the culture that their parents minister in, as much as they do the American culture. So to use a, a poetic phrase, and there's a movie with this title, we might say that they live between two worlds. And as Christians, we too live between two worlds. If someone asks where our home is, we might give our current address, we might give our hometown, something like that. But the true answer is that our home is with God. Our home is in heaven. And that's a difficult thing for us to square. But our passage from Exodus today sheds some light on what that looks like. God prepares his people in the old world of sin to be resurrected in the new world of redemption. God prepares his people in the old world of sin to be resurrected in the new world of redemption. In our passage today, Moses lives in this same tension between the old world and the new world. And so first we'll consider his state in the old world, and second we'll consider his state in the new world. First, the old world. Look at verse 1. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took him for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. So if you look at Genesis 1 and 2, and we talked about this a little bit in Sunday school if you've been with us for that. What you see in Genesis 1 and 2 is an overview of creation in Genesis 1. And then in Genesis 2, we get a, a zoomed in detailed picture of something, of an element that happened in creation in Genesis 1. There's a, there's a similar thing going on in Exodus. Exodus 1, you get this big picture about the whole people of Israel, the oppression they're undergoing. And then in Exodus 2, we get this picture of Moses, who's just one element, one child, and under the oppression of this Pharaoh who's killing all the male children. Now, interestingly, there's, there's almost no names in this passage. We don't get Moses' name, which is the only name we get, but we don't get it till verse 10. For most of the story... We simply hear the woman and the child. But Moses is the author of Exodus. He knows who all those people are. And he actually gives us all those details later on. So just for your context, in Exodus 6, we find out that Moses' father's name is Amram. And he's the grandson of Levi. His mother, her name is Jochebed. And she is actually Amram's father's sister. Their aunt and nephew. Now, of course, that relationship is forbidden later in the Torah. 
That's kind of sort of a side issue that comes up later. The main thing to notice is that Jochebed is probably at least several years older than her husband. By the time she has Moses, we might conservatively estimate that she's 50 years old. If not older than that, because she's got two other children. She's got Aaron, who's three years older than Moses, and Miriam, who's at least seven years older than Moses. In other words, Moses' birth is, is highly improbable, if not miraculous. And that puts him in a league with numerous other children throughout the scriptures, including, as we read about earlier, John and Jesus. Now, that, that provides some interesting context that gives us some things to think about. But Moses, intentionally, in this passage, conceals that context from us. The answer for why he does that is because Jochebed, his mother, and Moses are typological figures. They're standing in for something bigger. The woman and the child in Exodus 2 are pictures of the woman and the child in Genesis 3 and pictures of the woman and the child in Revelation 12 that we mentioned last week. And all of the women and children in between. So once again, just as we were dealing with a cosmic event last week in Exodus 1, now we're dealing with a cosmic event in Exodus 2. So how does this fit together? First, notice the phrase, she saw that he was a fine child. I believe the King James says she saw that he was a goodly child. Just to pull back the curtain on the Hebrew a little bit. The word child there is provided by your English translation. In fact, if if you have a King James Bible, it'll be italicized. And the italics in in the King James Bible are indicating that that word is not in the original language. And so the word child is provided. And then the word that the ESV, my Bible translates fine. You may see goodly in the King James or something like that. The word there is tov, which means good. So with, with, with those two things in mind, I want to give you Reed's hyper-literal translation of this phrase. It says, she saw that he was good. Now, if you know your Bible well, that should sound familiar. It's an echo of what God saw in creation. She saw that he was good. God saw that the creation was good. And so seeing that he was good, she hid him for three months. Now, periods of three in the Bible always signify waiting. They always signify testing. Three months is a time of preparation. You see this in other places all throughout the Bible. Just to give you two significant places. First is in 2 Samuel 6. 2 Samuel 6, David is attempting to bring the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. But there's some mishaps along the way. You can read about that in that passage. But the ark ends up in the house of Obed-Edom in the hill country for three months. We read about another instance of this three-month waiting period earlier. Mary goes and hides in Elizabeth's house for three months when she finds out that she's pregnant. And after this three months is up, after this time of waiting and testing is up, then what is hidden must be revealed. Now, you can imagine what it would have been like. As many of you know from experience, it's obvious when a baby is around. If you don't believe me, you can come look at my house right now. There's toys everywhere. There's, there's uh, baby items all over the place. The baby needs somewhere to sleep. The baby needs uh, food to eat. The baby cries, and as it grows, it gets louder and louder. They take up more space. They get more mobile. And so you can imagine that Moses' family is dealing with all of this, and they probably had a couple of close calls, where they're almost found out, where Pharaoh's men are, are knocking at their door and looking for this child that they believe might possibly be there. And so after three months, the time is up. Moses has to be revealed. And so what does, 
the woman, what does Jochebed do? She builds an ark. Now the word used for the vessel that Jochebed builds, my translation has basket, but it's the same word that gets used for Noah's ark. And those, that's, that's the only time in the entire Bible, these two places are the only times that that word is used, ark. And so the ark, the ark of the covenant is a different word. But just as time was running out for Noah to escape judgment, time was running out for Moses to escape judgment. Just as Noah was placed by God in the ark to survive the floodwaters, so Moses is placed by his mother in an ark to survive the waters of the Nile. Now we've talked about this at length before, but Christians live with dual citizenship between two worlds, in this world and in the next. And so there's a sense in which we've already been redeemed, but there's a final judgment coming, and that's what Advent is, is about. Advent's both a remembrance of the past coming of Jesus and a looking forward, looking ahead to the future judgment, to the future return of Jesus. Our salvation has come, which is why we can sing joy to the world. The Lord has come, but our salvation is also coming. It's on its way. Our salvation has come, but we also still live in a fallen world and a sinful world. And Paul reminds, of, reminds us of this in Romans 8. He says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. There's this tension. The, the future has broken into the present. But we're not yet all the way there yet. As it stands today, we have the promise of eternal hope, but the serpent still seeks to kill us. When the judgment comes, Satan would like nothing more than for you to drown under the wrath of God. The flood of God's judgment is coming upon us all. And the question that we need to answer is whether we will be safe and protected, like Moses, like Noah, or will we not? For Christians, the ark, the, the safe place is the church. To escape the flood of judgment, we need to be united with him. We need to be safe under his protection. The cries of God's people, the cries of the world, are always getting louder. And God in his mercy has held off judgment, but a time will come and is coming when the cries of the people will become too loud. The cries of creation, the groaning of creation will become too loud. When their need for redemption is too great. When the time of preparation and waiting is filled up, that time is coming and it's coming fast. And so the question for you is, are you ready for it? Are you safe in the arms of Christ? Are you living in faith under his protection and righteousness? If not, my call to you today and in this season of Advent is to heed that call. To turn to him in faith. To place your trust in him. To climb aboard the ark of his salvation. And if you have trusted in him for salvation, know that we will still experience the flood. You'll still experience the judgment. When Moses was placed in the river, he was crying. He was scared. He didn't feel safe or secure. And I suspect that Noah probably felt a similar way on the ark when the flood waters were rising. But know that we have a promise of redemption when the flood subsides. And that brings us to our second point. 
the new world. Look at verse 5. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young woman walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother, and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. In Moses' story, salvation comes from a very unlikely place. It comes from the house of Pharaoh, the one who had decreed his death. And in fact, he's placed in the river by his mother, which is, is almost an act of obedience to Pharaoh's decree. Pharaoh says they should be cast into the Nile, and so that's what Moses' mother does. She casts him into the Nile. But if you pay attention to this passage, you'll notice there are several parallels. First, Pharaoh's daughter shares a common compassion with Jochebed, with Moses' mother. The, the motherly instinct that Jochebed had to protect her son, to guard him, is also found in Pharaoh's daughter. She takes the basket, just as Mo, Moses' mother did. She sees the child, just as Moses' mother did. But Pharaoh's daughter also shares a common compassion with God. We'll get to the details of this next week. But at the end of Exodus 2, God's concern with the Israelites mirrors the princess's concern for Moses. Listen to Exodus 2, 23-25. It says, During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned, cried out, because of their slavery, and cried out for help. Their cry, to, their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. This is striking, because one would expect Pharaoh's daughter to fear her father's decree. She would have been taking a huge risk to defy the order that she'd been given. But just as the midwives feared God more than Pharaoh, so did his own daughter. Now, some people have read this passage a little bit differently, thinking that what's happening is that Moses' family tricked Pharaoh's daughter into doing this. But I think that we need to give her a little bit more credit than that. She's not ignorant of the circumstances. First of all, she immediately knows this is a Hebrew child. It's obvious to her. And that's confirmed when this young girl pops out of the reeds out of nowhere and just happens to know a woman who can nurse the child. The situation should be obvious to Pharaoh's daughter. She knows what's going on. And once again, since the serpent encouraged the fall by deceiving Eve, by deceiving the woman, God uses all these women to actually deceive the serpent. It's, it's an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. The, the serpent is outmaneuvered by the women that he had deceived. And so Pharaoh sought to separate the woman and the child, but his own daughter is the one who delivers the child back to the very one who called him good. And after all that, she gives the child a Hebrew name, Moses. Now, this is actually a name shared between Egyptians and Hebrews. In, in Egyptian, Moses means son of. 
And so you got that a little bit in Exodus 1. Remember the, the city Ramses, the son of Ra. You see Moses at the end of that. And it's, it's a common name. It's a name that is, would be as common as Sam or something like that in, in our language. But Pharaoh's daughter doesn't rely on that, that Egyptian rationale, that Egyptian explanation. She gives her rationale, she gives this Egyptian name a Hebrew meaning. Moses, or Moshe in Hebrew, literally means one who draws out from the water. And that's a little taste, we get this to this in Exodus 14, of what Moses will do at the sea. It says that Moses drew them out of the water. And so in summary, Pharaoh's daughter does several things. She defies her father's order to kill the Hebrew males. She provides for the child by paying his own mother to nurse him. And she allows the boy to grow up among his own people before returning to the courts of Pharaoh. Christian, that's what Jesus does for us. He saves us from judgment. He provides us our needs. He unites us with God's people. You see, there's there's a striking shift in tone from the first half of this passage to the second. It begins with fear. It begins with turmoil. It begins with the threat of death and judgment. But as Moses floats across the river to the other side, there's peace and there's hope and there's safety in the king's house. As long as we live this life, we are under oppression. Sin is crouching at the door, seeking to devour us. Satan seeks to drown us in a flood of judgment. But as Exodus reminds us, God hears our cries. He hears our cries for mercy, our pleas for salvation. So in this life, there will be pain. In this life, there will be death. There will be struggle. The the grand irony of that is that for believers, those very sufferings lead to resurrection. They lead to glory, and they lead to hope. This whole story centers around one child, Moses, and his preparation to redeem God's people. But everything that Moses was and everything that Moses hoped to be is ultimately fulfilled in Christ. Just as Moses was hidden for three months, so Jesus was hidden for three months in Elizabeth's house. Just as Moses was threatened by a tyrannical king, so Jesus was threatened by a tyrannical king. Just as Moses was sent into Egypt to escape Pharaoh's wrath, so Jesus was sent into Egypt to escape Herod's wrath. Just as Moses prepared for the redemption of his people, so did Jesus. But Jesus is greater than Moses. Hebrews 3 says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was also faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant, to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and hope. So where is your confidence? In whom do you boast? Trust in the redemption offered by Jesus Christ, who took on flesh, becoming like us in every way, yet without sin, submitting to death for us that we might share in his resurrection, offering us a safe place in the floodwaters of judgment. Rejoice in him, 
Trust in him. Place your hope in him who can save you from those floodwaters. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory. With great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory and majesty, dominion and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. Would you pray with me?